Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, truly it is wonderful to praise and honor your most holy name. And as we behold in our mind the glory and the beauty and the simplicity of the incarnation of God becoming man in the form of Jesus, in the form of a little baby, we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done and the great plan of salvation that you have designed from the beginning. And as we worship you and look into your holy word to understand this plan of salvation and what your plan is for each of our lives, we pray, Heavenly Father, for the power and the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, because without your presence, all of us and what we do is in vain. Therefore, Lord, in weakness and in humility we come and worship you and ask for your blessing upon this meeting in Jesus' name. Amen. For the reading this morning, it's a very short uh, reading from the prophet Isaiah, speaking precisely about the Lord Jesus and his coming. You can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. And we'll just read verse 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's rise for prayer. Father in heaven, we would bow our heads and our hearts before thee this morning. In this season of remembrance, when we consider that thou, O Lord, did send thine only begotten Son into this world to bestow upon us the greatest gift to all mankind everlasting life, through his blood, which was to be shed. Lord, we would now focus our minds and our, our praise unto thee, even at this time, to consider what has been given to us. For we know that in this world, many things come and go. We see how transient life is. We see how transient the possessions of this life are. But one thing remains, and that is thy everlasting word. The word which was made manifest in the body of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we would consider this morning that thou hast given to all mankind the opportunity to come and to seek their salvation, which is in Jesus Christ and him alone. And may it be that not one soul that is gathered here, O Lord, 
would consider lightly, but, but would consider that these are the issues of life and death, everlasting life and death, and may take very seriously the call that comes through the spoken word. Lord, we're thankful for the quietness of this place. We pray for our government to preserve it. We're thankful for the many that have come from far and near, and we pray thy rich blessing upon each one. Lord, for those grieving for loss of loved ones, we pray. But now we pray also for Brother Dan, that thou wouldst inspire him through the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us from thy word, that which we need to be reminded of and that which we need to learn more of. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Indeed, our gathering this morning is all about the name of Jesus. And it's wonderful to hear his name exalted in the beauty of music and the expression of the words and the poetry set to music. And it's my prayer that his name be glorified also in the spoken word. As we look into what, in this case, what the word of the prophet has read or spoken and is recorded for us and what it means in context with the very meaning of life. Familiar words to us. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A prophetic word foretold hundreds of years before the very birth of Jesus Christ, as well as telling us in this word, by the names given to him, the descriptive names of Jesus, about what kind of person he will be and what his role is. And so let's take a look at some of these descriptive names. There's only a few of them listed here, and there's many more in other places in the Scripture. But uh, let's begin uh, with these. The first one is described as Wonderful Counselor. We all understand the word counselor and what that means. When we have a problem, when we are in um, a situation where we need help and advice, we would go see a counselor, someone that gives wise counsel, someone that listens with understanding, and someone that has a wealth of wisdom, in a sense, ready to be dispensed. But what makes a counselor wise is that he knows which nugget of wisdom to dispense that is suitable or perfect for the application or for the problem at hand. And we know that Jesus is the wisest counselor. Wisdom comes from God. And Jesus, being in the form, uh, being the very express image of the Father, is a wise counselor. Someone that who, who knows and understands and is able to discern the situation that one is in. Someone that is able to see past merely the outward appearance, merely past the, what is expressed in words, but someone that is able to look into the very heart of you and me. And those of us that are familiar with the life of Jesus know that he did that all the time. Often it's 
describes Jesus as him knowing what was in the heart. And therefore, he was able to speak and address the situation in manners that surprised the people around them because they didn't know what was in the heart of the person that was being addressed. But Jesus knew, and he could cut through all of the, all of the fluff and the surface uh, presentation and get through to the core of the matter because he knew what was in the heart because he was and is a wise counselor. Another attribute of someone that is a wise counselor is someone that's impartial. Someone that understands it in its very truth and doesn't see it from a particular bias or slanted or only sees half of the picture and therefore the decisions or the counsel that is given is uh, imbalanced or doesn't fit the whole scenario. That's so often true with us because we are limited when we try to give wise counsel or understand a situation. There, are more th- there is typically more than one perspective of looking at a a situation. And we all have our own inherent biases and viewpoints and, in a sense, blinders that we can't see the whole picture and don't understand it. But Jesus can and does. And so he is given this descriptive name of Wonderful Counselor. The next descriptive name that the prophet tells us about is the Mighty God. And the Everlasting Father. These two are somewhat overlapping. But if we look at the mighty God describing him as a ruler, someone who is in charge. In fact, giving Jesus, the man, this child that is born, this son that is born, equating him with God. And this, in particular, was very offensive to those that did not believe him. This was, the Bible describes him as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You know when you're walking along a path and there is, uh, the path is relatively smooth and so you don't really think about your footing so much and suddenly there is an obstacle in your path. Not so big that it's easily noticeable, but a stone that maybe sticks up half an inch or an inch, something like that. And you stumble over it because you didn't notice it and didn't take heed to that it was there and adjust your steps accordingly. In a sense, this is this image of Jesus, a stone of stumbling, where he wasn't understood, wasn't believed, wasn't accepted by those that stumbled over him, and it influenced their lives. It's something that one bumps into and is unavoidable. And this is true for every person that hears about the name of Jesus. A decision, a response is called upon about what are you going to do about what you know about Jesus. Do you believe that he is the mighty God? He is one with the Father? He is the very image and the express person of God, the scriptures tell us. This is indeed very remarkable because there is no other person in history that is given this title, that is given those attributes. 
And this became the very core of so many of Jesus' conversations and teachings. God is a ruler, someone who is in charge, and there is no one above him. And this same title is given to Jesus. Is he in charge of your life? He rules the world. He rules the universe. Although at times you might wonder, as far as when you think about what's happening in the world, is God really in charge? Yes, he is. There are other forces at work, and there is a battle, no doubt. But ultimately, God is in control. And be sure, be comforted, that there is nothing that happens, nothing that takes place that doesn't happen without God's involvement, God's permission, God's consent, or God's doing. The forces of evil are there as well, and for a time, the Lord permits evil to take place. But there will come a time in the culmination, and the choir will sing about that uh, afterward, when Jesus ultimately reigns and his kingship is fully realized and fully exercised. The everlasting Father. This describes the personal nature of Jesus and God. Because not only is he a mighty God that we can view sometimes and get this picture that he is far away and somewhat disconnected and impersonal, God is also described as a father. And Jesus is given that title, the everlasting father, someone who is personal, someone who is close, someone who understands what we are going through, and someone who is intimately interested in our welfare. That is what we understand a father to be like. Someone that takes a little child and guides them and teaches them and trains them and protects them and leads them. This is what we are told about what God is like. And finally, the one that is listed here is the Prince of Peace. The one that brings peace. The author of peace the one that brings the recipe and the means by which peace happens. But why? What is this aspect of peace? This would suggest that there is unrest or there is war. Why the need for this descriptive name of peace? We understand peace to be the freedom from war, the idea of um, a settling from a time of unrest, peace and tranquility. And so let's take a look in the scriptures as why Jesus needed to come to be the instrument of peace or the maker of peace or the means by which there is peace. If we look at the very beginning of the scriptures, it tells us why. And maybe one moment before we get to there, if you will recall from the very first song that we sang, Joy to the World, tucked in one of the verses is a phrase, He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Did you notice that phrase? There's this, Jesus comes to...
far. If we go to Genesis chapter 3, where we have that historical day in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobedience, our Lord, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return." And so we have the very beginning here of this statement of cursed is the ground. Is there any place in the world where these kinds of things don't happen? Thorns and thistles grow, and we have the beginning of the degeneration, the introduction of death, which was foretold and warned when God instructed Adam not to eat of that tree. And so we live under a curse. And this curse is described in more detail as the law is given to the children of Israel through Moses as we look into Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26. The Lord describes, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which ye have not known. And so we have it. A blessing and a curse, depending on how we live our lives. And so we think, well, well, that's simple, then all we need to do is obey, right? Obey the commandments, and we will not live under the curse any longer. And as hard as we may try to live up to the fullness of the moral commandments in the scriptures, we find that we fail. So much so that the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans chapter 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, no Not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. Remember, it uses this phrase, out of the way. Earlier in Deuteronomy, it used a similar phrase. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not God. And it continues on in further and further descriptive terms of how all mankind has rejected God in our hearts. And even though at times we may do good things, in our hearts there is this corrupt and sinful nature. That's the reality. And that's the bad news. That's the curse. But thanks be to God that Jesus has come, and so we don't have to stay under that curse. And so we see in a couple of the phrases that I pulled out from the, script, from the songs that we have just sung in these carols, 
the King of Kings salvation brings. And it gives us a picture that we need to be saved from this sinful, sorry state that we are. If we look at another phrase, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Enter Jesus Christ as the word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. And we can look at um, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, how he describes this uh, in terms of how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Equating God with the Word of God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Continuing on in verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Brother Bill used the phrase in the prayer of Jesus coming in the bodily form. The word of God in bodily form. That was Jesus Christ. And that is known as the incarnation. Where God is made flesh. A mystery. How can God... In the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God can limit himself and package himself in the form of a little baby. And that is indeed just the wonder of the very essence of the gospel, which we see and observe and commemorate and celebrate at Christmas time. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's look at this word glory a little bit because that's a word that's used a lot um, around this season and in terms of giving glory to God. Glory is, the, an, uh, some synonyms of glory is beauty and majesty and splendor and wonder. To give glory to something would be to speak well of it or in a sense to highlight it or lift it up in a sense that it can be seen uh, more by more people. And um, given praise to. And this is true in so many forms. We know the glory of the creation when we observe the beauty and the detail and the splendor of what God has made in the creation. We behold the glory even of a little infant. And it's interesting how infants attract attention. Even though they are the smallest humans, yet they attract a disproportionate amount of tension attention in compared to their size because there's something special and marvelous about a little infant a brand new uh, baby attracts attention and displays in a sense the glory of god because only god can create life and the beauty of a newborn And so, in the infant Jesus, there is this glory and majesty present, which attracted the attention, then, of course, of the shepherds as they were instructed to go and see this child and behold his glory in this humble estate, being born in a manger, not even proper accommodations For someone that is God coming in the flesh. The Son of God coming in the flesh. 
And yet, this was precisely part of his design, demonstrating humility, demonstrating a different kind of power than what we are accustomed to seeing, this power that was described by the angels when they sang to the shepherds, giving glory to God. What a tremendous chorus that must have been. And the brightness of, its, of, of the image of the angels being there. No other birth in history had such an announcement. No other birth in history had so much attention focused on it. And rightfully so, because Jesus was the only one who came from heaven to be born as a man. Full of grace and truth. This is a marvelous statement about Jesus. Remember we talked about earlier about being a counselor and a wise counselor. Jesus being full of grace and truth. Demonstrating the truth and righteousness of God and yet extending grace because none of us, none of us have fulfilled those righteous demands. And if he came only in truth and judgment, then all of us would deserve death. All of us would have received the penalty of death. But because he came with grace to offer salvation and to be the means of peace. And now we're coming to this point of peace. Why peace? Because of sin, there is not peace between God and man. In our natural state, there is not peace. When someone sins against you, when someone trespasses against you and hurts you deeply, emotionally, and wounds you, is there peace in that relationship? No. There needs to be reconciliation. And Jesus came to be the very means of reconciliation. And if we look at in Ephesians, it's described how Jesus did that. In Ephesians chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man. So making peace. And here's the main point, in that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enemy thereby, and came and preached peace to you. This verse specifically is talking about the enmity between historically between Jews and Gentiles. As we know, there are many nations warring one another, many ethnic groups that cannot get along with each other. Even today, around the world, much bloodshed because of that. Jesus came to bring peace. Not only on a national scale, of course, but more primarily, peace in the heart and peace with God and man. Because when there is peace in the heart between God and man, that is the only means by which there can be peace Lasting, true, genuine peace between man and man. But it introduces something here that is not, uh, maybe we don't normally think of peace being made this way, but there is this aspect of sacrifice. Peace costs something. Peace is not free. 
One must give something up. And in fact, when there is a conflict between people, in order to make peace, even there is personal sacrifices made. Maybe you need to give up some of your personal rights in order to extend the olive branch, so to speak, extend an arm of peace and reconciliation. Forgiveness must be extended. That costs something. Well, Jesus paid that price because the price for reconciling us to the Father because of our sin is so great that none of us could pay that price. However good a moral life you may have lived, however many good um, charitable deeds that you might do, even for a lifetime, doesn't even come close to paying the price of reconciliation, the cost of redemption being purchased by Jesus Christ. And so that's why he had to come in order to make that sacrifice and lay down his life. Even though it looked like it was taken by force, Jesus made it very clear that he laid it down. And he has power to lay it down, and he demonstrated that he had power to take it up again on that third day when he rose again. If we look at, going back to the Gospel of John how the John the Baptist introduced Jesus coming on the scene in verse 29, chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. How did he do that? By taking that sin upon himself and absorbing the cost of our sin, absorbing the penalty, the death penalty that he absorbed in suffering and in death on the cross at Calvary. And so Jesus is our redemption. And the gospel, this is the gospel message, that you don't have to stay in your sins. But it requires a response. This is not something that happens passively, and that you can carry on, each of us can carry on merrily, continuing in our sins because the price is paid and all is taken care of? No, the gospel demands a response. And that response is to repent. Repent and turn from our sins. And so, my sinner friend, repent and turn from your sins. And those ideas were expressed also in the carols that were sung this morning. Maybe you might remember uh, some of them, and maybe we'll look at them uh, momentarily if I can look up some of those uh, phrases. If we look at uh, one of the songs that we sang, describes true man yet very God, this aspect of the incarnation. From sin and death he saves us. Jesus saves us from sin and death. But how does he do that? Another song that we sang. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. This phrase alludes to the new birth. When a soul turns to Jesus in repentance, 
He is reborn. He is regenerated. That is made new. And more vigorous spiritual life is given. Is given. It's not something that we can create and muster up within ourselves. It is given by God. When a soul turns and responds to the gospel in repentance. There's a phrase here I'm looking for. Yes, uh, also in this same song. In this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Part of this response of repentance is meekness. Humbling ourselves before God. Realizing that we are sinners. And praying that simple prayer that Jesus describes God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This provides this glorious new life to begin that we no longer live in the bondage of sin, but live as God has intended because Jesus came to give meaning and purpose in life. And so more than just saving us from sin, he sets us on the right path to live for him, a life that gives honor and glory to him, a life that is centered around him. Because remember, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Is he therefore king in your heart? Does he lead you day by day? And this is the evidence then of a regenerate life, of someone that has truly repented. Do they live? Do you live a life that follows Jesus? Is your life's purpose and meaning, and hopes, and dreams, and values centered around who Jesus is and what he stands for as the Son of God. And in the form of establishing his kingdom on earth, we become participants then in his spiritual kingdom, sharing the gospel to those that don't yet know it or have not yet responded to the gospel. Those that are still hardened to the gospel, those that are resisting the gospel, those that are still entangled in their chains of sin and feeling the hurts and the consequences of those sins. Jesus comes as a wonderful counselor. Can you be a wonderful counselor with the Lord Jesus working in you? Because he's physically no longer on earth, but his body is figuratively and literally in the form of the congregation, the church of God, the regenerate people that have their lives centered around Jesus Christ. In closing, I want to repeat one of the phrases that I had said before. True man, yet very God. Do you believe that? From sin and death, he saves you and me, enlightens every load. This reminds me of the phrase that Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Respond to the call of Jesus today 
Amen.